0: This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's Jodgel Bank Centre for Astrophysics. For the full show and archives, visit Jodcast.net. Hello. In the news this week, Cassini, gone but not forgotten, the possible discovery of an exomoon. But first, major results from LIGO. Not content with being the subject of this year's Nobel Prize for Physics, gravitational waves are once again sending ripples through the scientific community. On the 16th of October, the gravitational wave observatories LIGO and VIRGO announced that not only have they detected gravitational waves from two merging neutron stars, but electromagnetic counterparts to the merger were also detected right across the spectrum. General relativity predicts that gravitational waves are something produced by objects accelerating, and the more massive the object, the bigger the wave. Since neutron stars are so massive, the gravitational waves produced by two of them merging are large enough for us to detect, Gravitational waves were first observed in September 2015, but the detection of EM waves from the same source is a first and has caused a huge amount of excitement. The first detection was made by the Fermi Gamma-ray Space Telescope, which detected a short gamma-ray flash made two seconds after the merger. The nature of this burst is incredibly similar to what we actually call short gamma-ray bursts, which have long been thought to be made by neutron star mergers, but until today we've had no proof of that. Follow-up observations are now going to be possible due to the localization of the burst made possible by collaboration between LIGO and Virgo, who together are able to localise any gravitational wave detection to about 30 square degrees, as opposed to 600 square degrees that LIGO could just do on its own. This is going to open the door to new tests of GR and the origin and nature of astrophysical phenomenon we have long wondered about. Despite crashing into Saturn on the 17th of September, Cassini is still making waves, though this time of a non-gravitational variety. Scientists examining data from the final few months of the mission have released some of their findings, many of which the community have found surprising. Cassini spent the last four months of its 20-year mission repeatedly diving between Saturn and its rings, before being steered on a collision course with the planet. By plunging into the atmosphere, Cassini was able to collect information on the composition of the planet's atmosphere, as well as its gravitational and magnetic fields. The magnetic fields have been particularly surprising. It's thought that in order to generate a magnetic field through rotation of its core, a theory known as dynamo theory, a planet must have a misalignment of around 10 degrees between its rotation and magnetic field axes. Saturn has been found to have a misalignment of less than 0.06 degrees. Current theory suggests that for such good alignment, the magnetic field should have died away within 100 million years. As Saturn is thought to be about 4.5 billion years old, this clearly hasn't happened, and scientists need to re-evaluate their understanding of dynamo theory. Through this measurement as well, we've also been able to obtain direct measurements of the rotation of Saturn, which has given us the best estimate of the length of a day, which has been found to be about 1.8 hours. Cassini entered the atmosphere at a higher altitude than expected, as it was discovered that the atmosphere extended almost all the way out to the rings. Within the atmosphere, scientists were expecting to find evidence of ring material falling to the surface. This would have been reflected in high measurements of water, as the rings have a high quantity of ice within them. However, instead, Cassini measured high concentrations of methane, a gas which was not at all expected to exist in the rings or the upper atmosphere. This has puzzled everyone and the jury is still out on what leads to such abundances of a gas that is supposed to not be able to last long in such environments due to its volatility. And finally, in the first detection of its kind, the Kepler Space Telescope has possibly found a signal from an exomoon, and now the first explorations of the nature of this moon have been released. In July, David Kipping and Alex Tucci made the announcement that within Kepler data, they had discovered the signs of an exomoon orbiting the planet Kepler-1625b. The planet is a gas giant somewhere in size between Saturn and a brown dwarf. At this point, it is important to note that the exomoon has not been confirmed as the Kepler data on the planet and the exomoon is not of high enough quality, though the Hubble Space Telescope conducted observations on the 29th of October to attempt to confirm its existence, and we should soon see these results published. Due to the lack of data, it is difficult to characterise the exomoon. This hasn't stopped people from trying. In a paper accepted by the Astronomical Journal on the 14th of October, a link to which you can find on our website, René Heller has published his analysis of what data there is. The bottom line is that whilst the exact mass and size of the moon is unknown, the bounds on these parameters mean that the moon could be anything between an Earth-mass gas planet to a Saturn-sized rocky world. Heller's analysis points towards something somewhere in the middle, likely a Neptune-mass exomoon, orbiting a large, super-Jovian planet. This is an incredible find, as all current planetary formation theories cannot explain how such a large moon would form. There are currently three understood methods for a planet to acquire a moon. The first is through impact, such as our own moon. Our planet was hit by a very large object which threw out material which collapsed to form our moon. The second method is for moons to form with the planet out of the protoplanetary disk, such as around Jupiter and its Galilean moons. And the final method is for a planet to capture a preformed body with its gravitational field. This is the case for planets like Neptune, one of which its moons has a retrograde orbit, which cannot be explained by either of the other two methods. None of these theories even come close to explaining how such a large moon has come to be around. To paraphrase Heller, if this can be validated as a huge moon orbiting a super-Jovian planet, then it will pose an exquisite riddle for formation theorists to solve.